the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll be joined by Congressman Dan Kildee today to update us on all of the policy and spending debates going on in Washington. Will we see Congress act on major legislation this fall? And then we're going to do something pretty special. It's Constitution and Citizenship Day, and we're going to meet two new Americans who will tell us about their journeys to this country and why it was so important to them to formally become Americans. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. And as always, I'm really glad you have decided to join us today. It's Constitution Day and Citizenship Day here in the U.S. And a little later in the show, I am really excited to talk with two brand new American citizens who came here from other countries about why they decided to move here and become Americans. You don't want to miss that conversation. I'm pretty sure it is going to move you quite a bit to hear these two stories. But first, members of Congress are returning to Washington, D.C. after more than a month at home. The House and Senate are mired in all kinds of policy and spending debates right now. Democrats are trying to win consensus inside their own majorities around the massive $3.5 trillion spending bill and how to pay for it. And we're still waiting to see whether they're going to pass a substantial infrastructure plan. I should say, we're all really hoping that they will pass that substantial infrastructure plan. But there are plenty of other important pieces of legislation moving through the Capitol as well, including a measure that supporters say could transform older industrial towns and cities like Detroit and Warren and Dearborn, Pontiac and Lansing. This provision, which cleared the House Ways and Means Committee this week, would provide $5 billion over five years to communities that have suffered chronic economic hardship and job loss due to trade-related events. It's likely to make its way into the larger budget reconciliation bill that's moving forward, and it's a really innovative approach to bringing some relief to old industrial cities. Michigan Congressman Dan Kildee sits on the Ways and Means Committee and joins us now to talk about this bill and everything else going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me back on, Stephen. So uh, first, talk a bit about this provision that made its way through Ways and Means this week and what it would mean for Michigan cities like Detroit, Warren, and Pontiac. Well, it's a really important uh, initiative. It's actually one that I wrote. So this is legislation that my staff and I have been working on uh, really for a couple of years. And then you know, we're able to get it through the Ways and Means Committee just recently as part of this larger package. So here's what it it provides for. It would give an opportunity for these older industrial cities who have borne the brunt of big trade-related changes in their economy. You know, the shift, for example, of manufacturing uh, to other states or to other parts of the world, most importantly, to 
Mexico to China to other places has really had a disparate impact on communities. The idea here is to empower these communities to develop an economic development plan to take them to the 21st century economy by investing in those communities. Uh, it's really about empowering local decision makers and then supporting those plans through whatever they come up with. It's a very flexible uh, set of plans. It's a, you know, in some communities, what that would mean is a plan to remove obsolete blighted facilities, to remediate brownfields. In some cases, it might be really specific to you know, investing in a certain type of industry that they think is critical to connecting them to the new economy. These are communities that are often left behind. And what we want to do is recognize that and disproportionately help those places catch up to where everybody else is. So that's basically what the, what the plan um, would do. And, and we would, in this case, commit a billion dollars a year for five years to, uh, to put this into motion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to note that this trade issue which is part of the reason that cities like Detroit and Pontiac and uh, uh, the other places that would be covered by the bill are, are struggling, is a real sensitive point. It is a sensitive point inside the Democratic Party, uh, number one, but, but it's also a sensitive point in the larger national politics. Uh, how do we make up for uh, trade disadvantages that get heaped on uh, urban centers um, that that also create all kinds of economic activity for other people. I mean, there is this kind of natural tension uh, in trade policy that that leaves us at the the, the short end uh, of the stick too often. Uh, this is this is one of the first things that I've come across uh, that that really says. We've got to we've got to specifically make up for those losses in these communities. That's the that's the point. It's a really important one. We know that ultimately, in general, we need to be engaged in the global economy. That's just reality. We don't get to decide if there's a global economy. There is one, and we have to engage it for our long-term well economic well-being. But we also have to be honest and say that when we do that. Some communities do better than others. And the, the whole idea, I mean, this is called trade adjustment assistance. We have to make these adjustments to offset the fact that while some communities will do extraordinarily well through this, this process of globalization over the last few decades, some get hit pretty hard. Let's just help them get back to the starting line so that as we go through these periods of economic growth, everybody gets to participate. Too many of these communities have structural problems that make it difficult for them to do that, and that's what this is intended to get at. And you know, I mentioned blight and abandonment because, as you and I have talked over the years, this has been a focus of a lot of my work even long before I came to Congress. This concept that I now have been able to get moving in Congress is really born of my experience working in these very cities for decades and con- continuing to realize that what they need is a plan and they need some resources to execute the plan. And then they can kind of get back to what they used to be, this really high, a really highly productive community that contributes 
to the economy and not one that is always in a position of needing help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the bigger $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill. We're hearing now that Democrats want to fund that bill, at least in part, by rolling back some of the Trump era tax cuts. The Ways and Means Committee that you serve on is also working on legislation to achieve that. Talk about what you expect that to look like, how much revenue it might uh, generate, and how how likely it is that Democrats can do something like that and not pay a, a pretty steep price uh, uh, at the election next uh, next November? Well, I think if people completely understand it and don't fall victim to sort of the antagonists using talking points that are not true, I think we'll be fine. But, you know, the politics of this stuff can't be the driver of good or bad policy. You know, we're going to have to manage the politics of it, but we have to start by doing the right thing. If we're going to make these big investments, we know we have to pay for them. And, and I, I just saw Kevin McCarthy on television saying that we're not paying for it, that we're borrowing money. This is the point. We're not going to borrow money to do all this big stuff that we want to do. We're going to pay for it. And we're going to do so not by going back to where we were before the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, there's some compromise in this. Um, you know, there's been talk about what are we going to do about capital gains taxation? I could argue for a very high capital gains tax rate. This is only a modest increase. We go from 15 to 20, not back up to 35. Um, so the bottom line on this is, People making less than $400,000 a year, which, let's, fa- let's face it, is the vast majority of the American population, they won't see a tax increase. People who do really well uh, will have to pay their fair share. Uh, people who make more than $5 million a year, for example, will have a 3% additional tax on top of the top rate under our plan. We think those who have done extraordinarily well should be congratulated, but also should contribute more to making sure we have a civil society. The basic elements of a community are intact. We think that's fair. And that's why I think this, if well understood, will not only achieve our goals, but will also be accepted and embraced by the American people, if it's well understood. I'm talking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township, uh, about a number of things going on in Washington, D.C. right now as uh, members of Congress get back to work after a month at home. Uh, We've talked about uh, a new approach to helping cities that are hard hit by trade policies, cities like Detroit and Warren and Pontiac, uh, that will be part of the uh, budget reconciliation bill that uh, Democrats are considering. Uh, we're also talking about how to pay for uh, that budget uh, reconciliation and, and the things that are in it. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about the infrastructure bill that is still being debated uh, on, on Capitol Hill uh, and a couple of other issues. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, call and tell us what questions you have for Congressman Dan Kildee. Uh, as our representatives get back to work in Washington. What do you think of Congressional Democrats' push to pass this $3.5 trillion spending bill without any Republican uh, support, uh, something that 
almost seems inevitable uh, in these days in Washington in terms of uh, the way things are so closely divided. Uh, also, give us a call and tell us what kind of things you would like to see Congress investing in. Are there things that you think should be on the congressional agenda that uh, maybe you haven't seen? Also, give us a call and let us know what you think of the infrastructure bill. Uh, we've had quite a summer with uh, with infrastructure trouble here uh, in Metro Detroit. Uh, do, you, do you support the approach that the Democrats are taking uh, to this bill? And uh, do you look forward to the idea that uh, perhaps it could make things uh, just a little better for us uh, with uh, the advances in climate change? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I want to, before we get to, to listeners, talk about uh, this infrastructure bill, Dan. Um, we've been talking about it a long time in Washington, but it does seem to be making progress. It's coming together, and these things are tough because uh, you cannot count on, uh, I think, honest Republican cooperation to discuss these things. I mean, it is a really highly politically charged issue uh, all the way across the board uh, with them. But but give us a sense of where we are and uh, how likely we are to see that come together this fall. Well, I mean, we've made a lot of progress. You know, it seemed like uh, for four years, every week was infrastructure week, and we'd never see a bill. We would never put anything you know, on the table because of this highly partisan environment and the fact that you know, and I don't like to be overly partisan, frankly, but it's been really frustrating when we saw President Trump, as I said, every week was infrastructure week, except they never produced a bill. We finally have produced a bill. And we have some Republican support. It was done in a bipartisan fashion. I don't think it's big enough, to be frank. I mean, it's, it's not enough to solve the problem, but it's a step. And I'm willing to take that step, knowing that if we can do this, then maybe we can do more. I think that piece of it is the more certain piece. Uh, the, 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 the actual bipartisan infrastructure legislation, I think, has a decent shot. The problem is this. It's bipartisan in the Senate. But so far, there's no commitment of House Republicans to support it. Um, I can speculate about why that is, but you know, they just haven't really made a decision that they're going to even support a bipartisan effort here. That's the one hiccup. Uh, but, but, you know, th here's, the, here's the, the, the challenge, is that not doing this doesn't make the problem go away. And that's the issue that is, I think, has to, be, uh, has to be addressed. You mentioned the infrastructure needs right in um, Metro Detroit area. That's going to happen again with with uh, the changing climate, with, you know, more and more severe storms, and with a water and uh, sewer stormwater infrastructure not intended for that kind of volume, it's just going to keep happening unless we fix it. And we can't fix it for free. We can't do it with volunteers. We're going to have to pay for it. Hmm. And so my view is we got to take that medicine or we're going to pay in other ways. And right now we're paying with a lot of misery. 
Uh, let's get to the phones here. Rhonda in Ypsilanti. What's on your mind? Are you there, Rhonda? I'm here. Yes. Hi. Um, Hi. I really appreciate, you know, being there talking about this. Um, there's two points that I want to make. One is infrastructure, you know, as a, as a nation, we are long overdue for this. We're actually quite behind other nations, especially when it comes to high-speed rail and things like that. The other point that I wanted to make was about just this idea of trying to appeal to the better angels in the GOP party. I'm sorry, they don't exist. We've seen over the past four years or more that they are clearly willing to sacrifice the good of the nation for power grabs in their party. And I find myself being frustrated when I feel like I've voted for Democrats to step up and like really be bold and be mm. firm, as firm with them as they've been with the Democratic Party. And it just feels like, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to appeal to the intellect of people. And the truth of the matter is that people make political decisions very emotionally. Mm. And so Democrats want to talk to people's intellect, but I hate to say it. I don't think it's there for this. <laughs> you don't think so, it's working, Rhonda? <laughs> I don't think it's working. I okay. really I, don't. I, 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 I appreciate the call and uh, the very blunt assessment of uh, things in Washington. Uh, Dan, this was something I wanted to, to bring up anyway, which is not just how you work with Republicans, which you and I talk about quite a bit, but how do you work inside the Democratic Party to hold this majority together, not just for these votes, uh, but to be able to keep that majority after next fall. And you can't, I think, talk about that subject without talking about Joe Manchin, who is a senator from West Virginia, is uh, uh, a moderate Democrat uh, who is not a uh, who's not a liberal and would say he's not a liberal, but is a member of the party, votes with the party on most things, but in some cases has to appeal to voters in his state who are pretty conservative. Talk about navigating all of that and whether Rhonda's right that you can't really appeal uh, to some of these these interests, that you have to just come down hard with your uh, with your votes and your majority and get done what you can. Yeah, she makes a good point, and I share some of that frustration. Uh, it seems like there's an increasingly small number of Republicans that come from sort of the old school, let's work things out camp of the Republican Party. I was really sad to see um, Representative Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio yesterday decide that he's not running again because he just he's a Republican and he, he, he just can't take it. He can't tolerate this monolithic, pro, almost fealty to Donald Trump. And you know, he's basically being tossed out of the Republican Party because he says Joe Biden won the election. How do you, how do we work with that? You know that's the that's the hard part. But and on your larger point, you know we have a lot of diversity of thought in the in the Democratic Party. And in my my view, and I know this irritates some, but my view is we've got to find the boldest common denominator and take that step, even if that means it's not as progressive a policy as I would write if I were doing it myself. Hmm. But I think too many in, even in my own party are of the view that they would rather have a noble defeat than a marginal uh, step of progress. Mm -hmm. They would rather be able to go home 
and talk about what they fought for and how righteous they were and pat themselves on the back for their righteousness, having done nothing for the people that they profess to love so much. My view is, you know, let's get something done, even if that means some of our supporters are irritated with us. Our responsibility is not to be popular. Our responsibility is to get the work done. And if that means making a compromise in order to take a step in the right direction, that's what we should do. I am frustrated with Senator Manchin, however, and Senator Sinema, basically because I think it's dangerous to hide behind a relic of Jim Crow, which is the filibuster, mm-hmm. to not take up voting rights, to not take up you know these questions that are fundamental questions of principle in a democracy, and to hide behind something that's not in the Constitution, some concoction that was intended to keep um, civil rights and, you know, basically, you know, a relic of the Jim Crow era to keep from taking steps toward a more inclusive society so that basically then white Southern Democrats could hold on to their power. That's not defensible. That's just not defensible. It's It's not an argument over big ideas. It's hiding behind a relic of the past to prevent from having that argument. And I think that's got to end. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know we've got to let you go, uh, but but quickly, are you in favor of Democrats just ending the filibuster, just just doing away with it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Because the, uh, the one argument that has been advanced that I, that I want to address is this argument that Democrats, some Democrats make, that if we do that we'll pay a price because Republicans will do it to us. They do it to us anyway. They pretend the filibuster doesn't exist when it serves their purpose. They jam through, and now you know we're using the same tool with this reconciliation package, but they made the biggest tax cut in the history of the country that benefited the top 1% with 83% of the benefits by ignoring the filibuster. They have placed a new majority on the United States Supreme Court, a lifetime appointment Mm -hmm. by ignoring the filibuster. And so the idea that Democrats have to hold themselves to the standard that says the filibuster is in the way, but when Republicans are in power, they pretend it's there until they have to do something they want to do, and then they just ignore it. I think to me, it's, it's laughable. That, that we think about it as some sort of an institution that has to be protected, when, number one, it's not. It's not in the Constitution. And secondly, the Republicans ignore it when they choose to. Why, why are we holding on to it when it does not serve our purposes? It's, mm. it's outrageous. Okay. Congressman Dan Kelby, Democrat from Flint Township, represents Michigan's 5th District in uh, Congress. Always great to have you here on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, we are going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to have this really, really special conversation with two new Americans on Constitution Day and Citizenship Day. We'll talk about what it means to them to be Americans and about their decision to commit to this American experiment that includes all of us. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Since the week of July 4th, we've been talking every week on this show about the U.S. Constitution and how it affects all of our lives here in America. Our 2021 WDET Book Club reading of the Constitution has been an exploration of the promise and the failings and the future possibilities of the American experiment. Today is Constitution Day in our country. On this day, 234 years ago, the Founding Fathers signed the document that created the framework for a new nation. Today also happens to be Citizenship Day in the United States, a day where we celebrate what it means to be a citizen of our country and celebrate those who have become, or in, or in the process of becoming, new citizens, either by coming of age or by naturalization. Today on Constitution Day and Citizenship Day, we cap off our weekly conversations about the Constitution by talking about citizenship. Throughout the summer, we've talked with some of the leading legal scholars about the law and our founding documents, but today we want to spend the rest of the hour talking with two people with some of the most important insights on what it means to be a citizen of this country. Carlos Herrera and Jacqueline Arnold are new citizens of America, originally from Venezuela and Canada, respectively. They were naturalized here in Detroit over the summer, and they join us now to talk about their journey to becoming Americans. Carlos and Jacqueline, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. So first, I want to just say congratulations to you both. Uh, we're going to get into both of your stories shortly. But first, I'd like both of you just to reflect a bit on what being an American citizen means to you as someone who chose to become one. Jacqueline, uh, I'll start with you. Thank you, Stephen. Um, it, it was a very important process to me. Um, I, I was educated here for my post-secondary education and have made my career here and my family here um, through a course of a series of events. And, you know, having that capstone process to say that I'm legitimate, I've paid my dues, um, I'm part of the fabric of America, um, I intend to, you know, spend my rest of my future years here and my children's lives are here. It just, it was, um, it was definitely a celebratory day, but it was a calming reassurance that, you know, we've, you know, finalized that journey and, and, and know the direction of my future. So it was, it was a, it was a very exciting moment for, mm. for me and for my family. Mm. Uh, Carlos Herrera, tell us about this moment uh, where you become uh, an American citizen uh, by choice. Well, thank you, Stephen. I think um, I'm relate a little bit to the, what she said, and it was, the culmination basically of a long life dream that started many, many, many years ago. And, 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 and that was a day that 
day where we took the oath, it was uh, a very emotional day. And like I said, the combination of a journey of trials and, and, and many different experiences and, and, and feelings that come along with it. Yeah. Hmm. So, so, Carlos, you're originally from Venezuela. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like living there and how and why you came to the United States? So I, um, I normally um, explain that the, the reasoning for my desire to come here was just a better quality of life. Um, I, I was born and raised in Venezuela, and, then, and, and those are really treasure memories that you have growing up, your family, where you grew up, and things like that. And, but I wanted something different. I wanted something more. I wanted, um, a, uh, I wanted a different um, setting to to create my life and, 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 and to fulfill dreams that I had. So this was um, a place that uh, I visited uh, growing up and was the one that I got a certain attachment to. I had family living here for over 30 years, and, and that's why kind of I chose uh, this country. Hmm. Uh, Jacqueline, uh, you're originally from right across the Detroit River in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, tell us a bit about what brought you to live in America and uh, what made you decide not to want to be in, uh, in Canada where you were born. Um, sure. The, it began um, with my education. Um, uh, I met my husband and his mother was a radiographer, um, so x-ray tech. And when we were looking for schools, um, you know, being newly married, we could either drive, you know, three hours to London or I could cross the bridge and go to Henry Ford Hospital School of Radiography. And it would only be, you know, a 15-minute drive. Um, you know, I knew there were a lot of opportunities for um, positions as well in the States once I finished my education. And it, you know, being the land of opportunity, it was like the perfect marriage of, uh, you know, convenience. It was close and I could achieve my goals and not have to uh, sacrifice a whole lot. Um, as time went by and I moved from um, one position to another throughout the hospital system and throughout different um, clinics, it became clear that this was the direction that my career was best suited for, that you know, I had more opportunities than more, most of the people I knew that were working in the Windsor hospitals in the radiology departments at least. And it, uh, eventually I had a, a job at Basha Diagnostics where my boss, Dr. Basha, you know, encouraged me consistently. He was an immigrant from Syria and would say, you know, move here, move here, move here. You know, you can do this, you can do that. You know, there's so many more opportunities and chances for you. And he really, you know, put my mind at ease that he came from so far away and knew nothing where, you know, this was a little bit easier transition. It's really only 20 minutes. I speak the language. There's enough differences to be different, but... Um, he really kind of set that ball in motion and uh, made that, you know, a reality for me. And, you know, and that's that kind of set our ball in motion. And here we are. Hmm. So I, I always say that I think as people who are born here in America, like I was, uh, the whole idea of immigration and what it looks like and how it works uh, is, is often uh, kind of elusive. I mean, we just don't experience it obviously but we also don't understand a lot about how it how it works um so i want to talk just a little about how that worked for for the two of you 
and start with you, Carlos. You came here on something called uh, a diversity visa. Uh, can you explain for our listeners uh, what that is and what role that played in you being able to come to America? Um, the diversity visa program is a program from the U.S. government that what it does is it offers, it opens the opportunity for those countries with the least amount of immigrants coming into the United States to have the uh, opportunity to apply for a permanent resident, uh, permanent residency. And uh, Venezuela happens to be one of those when I applied. And this is what it's, this program is what's commonly known as the green card lottery. And, and I believe it's called lottery because it is a, it is a, it is a process that, well, there, there's millions, millions of applications sent through this program and just only a, a, a small amount is, is chosen to continue through that process. So I think that's why it, it's referred to as a lottery. But, but it, 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 uh, this program offers, like I said, those countries who don't have a great fluctuance of uh, immigrants to the United States to have the opportunity to um, become part of that process and, 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 and come uh, and, and live here in, in a permanent uh, residence manner. Hmm. Uh, and and Jacqueline, uh, talk about the decision to become an American citizen. Uh, you explained why you came to this country, but why was it so important to you to become an American uh, and not be uh, a Canadian? So as the final, you know, pass after, you know, student visa, then I did TN visa, then I had the green card. Um, my husband and I, we actually debated back and forth, you know, what are the benefits? You know, are there any drawbacks? Um, you know, what, you know, because we can't predict the future. We don't know where, where we'll end up. Um, you know, my two children were born at Henry Ford. I had high-risk pregnancy, so it was I was grateful for the opportunity to have great care, which, you know, inadvertently made them American um, as well. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, what if, who knows, right? Future green cards get renewed every 10 years. What if things changed? What if they've established their friendships, their college careers, their adult careers here? And, you know, one day Dave and I can't, uh, you know, participate in that any longer because we need to be told to go home. You know, we've established this as our home. This is really all my kids have known because they were young when we crossed over, um, and there really weren't any drawbacks. Um, you know, there's tax implications, of course, but, you know, those are nominal compared to all of the, you know, life benefits of um, security, peace of mind. Um, and in the current culture, I'm with the way the world is right now, I can't be more grateful than to be here, you know, this, these last couple of years, especially. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Jacqueline Arnold and Carlos Herrera, two new Americans, people who recently became Americans. Uh, we're talking about them uh, with them on Constitution Day and on Citizenship Day here in America. We want to hear from you, the listeners, during this conversation as well. What does it mean to you to be an American? Are you proud for instance, to be a citizen of this country? What are some of the things you think America represents and provides for citizens that you wouldn't find in other countries? We especially want to hear from you if you are, like Jacqueline and Carlos, an immigrant to this country. Why did you choose to come to America and start a new life? Are you a citizen or are you someone who has permanent uh, uh, 
permanent status here uh, as a non-citizen. Talk about that decision, about why you are an American or not. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I've got two special guests with us today. Jacqueline Arnold and Carlos Herrera are two new Americans. They recently became American citizens. We're talking to them because it is Constitution Day and Citizenship Day here in America. We're talking to them about their journeys to this country and why they decided to become citizens. We also want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about this country? Uh, what do you think about the values of this country? What's important to you about being an American citizen? Are you proud to be a citizen of this country? And what are some of the things that you think being an American represents uh, and things that you are able to enjoy or experience that you wouldn't find in other countries. We especially want to hear from you if, like Jacqueline and Carlos, you are also an immigrant to this country. Why'd you choose to come here? And are you a citizen or are you somebody with permanent visitor status uh, who does not want to be American citizen? Uh, call us and talk through with us what that decision looks like. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Jacqueline, I want to pick up uh, where we kind of left off right before the break when you were deciding, you were talking about the decision to become uh, an American citizen, uh, and you talked about it being uh, particularly poignant that it's happened over over the past year. I wonder uh, if what you're referencing there is uh, the pandemic and all the upheaval uh, that we've all experienced uh, Correct, yeah. as, a as a result of that. Um, so it's been particularly challenging living as close as I do to Windsor that, you know, once we moved here, which is now we're going on almost eight years ago, um, being able to drive to visit family, you know, in 20 minutes, you know, given border constraints. Um, and we would visit, you know, every couple of weeks. So it's been extremely difficult you know, with the COVID and the border being shut down, not having seen family for ne nearly a year and a half. But at the same time, if I mirror their experience with mine, I have a world of freedoms that they do not. Um, you know, my brother lives in Toronto, right in the you know epicenter. It's, it's one of the most highly populated regions in, in Canada, and he's not allowed, you know, outside of his apartment. Um, he was literally in lockdown into the, you know, it was a one, it was a studio apartment. So he's in one room for eight months, you know, not allowed to leave except to get, um, to get medical help or food because um, his, he was uh, in a position that was closed down um, due to lack of foot traffic. So he wasn't able to work. And, you know, just, you know, he wasn't even allowed to walk a pet. Like, so he didn't own a dog. So if you did, you could go a kilometer from your house. Uh, but if you didn't own a pet, you couldn't leave at all. So just to 
you know, have daily and weekly conversations with him about his experience compared to mine, compared to my relatives that are in Windsor. Um, I'm so grateful. Um, you know, you know, COVID's been terribly scary for so many, but to have had so many more freedoms and opportunities here, um, we're just, you know, I count my blessings every day that uh, I'm here and not there, hmm. especially now. Wow, wow. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Joseph in Waterford. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you, Father Melvin. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted to you know, not give a little input. Uh, I moved here from Puerto Rico about 40 years ago. And I raised my family here, and, uh, uh, you know, America has been great to me and my family. I have uh, four children. They all have a a college education because of the opportunity that I have here. I was able to open my own business. And I just want want to let the audience know that we live in a great country, regardless to all this craziness that's going on right now. This is a great country, and uh, they should appreciate it. and they should really love it because, uh, you know, th- we do have some great opportunities. That, that's all I wanted to say. So, hmm. yeah, uh, uh, Joseph, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, I, I, we should make uh, clear, though, that uh, Puerto Ricans are. Uh, U.S. citizens, and uh, you are not an immigrant <laughs> to this country. You're someone who moved from Puerto Rico uh, to the mainland here in the United States, but uh, you have been a citizen uh, since since you were born. But uh, but I really appreciate the story about why you came uh, to Southeast Michigan and uh, the opportunity that you feel like you've experienced uh, since you've been here. So, uh, uh, Carlos, uh, I also want to give you a chance to talk about what uh, the last year has has been like and the upheaval of the, the pandemic and whether that had much of an influence uh, on your decision to, to finally just become a citizen. It, it did. And um, it's, it, it was basically because of when um, the pandemic started back in May, um, around uh, the beginning of 2020, um, many of us, I was uh, in the position of having to be furloughed from work. And um, even though there were many great opportunities from, uh, from the U.S. government to help those going through this transition, um, we, we were fearful that some of these programs that we could participate in could influence or negatively affect our status within the U.S. And after many, many many, many hours and days of research, we were able to find out that thankfully it was not going to impact, but we said, let's just take that final step right now in in order for us to protect what we have built since we got here and and, 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 and secure kind of our future on a legal permanent basis because we've decided this is going to be our home, uh, hopefully for for the rest of our lives. Hmm. So Carlos also, uh, when our producers talked with you before the show, you brought up something that was said by the person who officiated your naturalization ceremony last week here in Detroit. Uh, what did that person say, and why was it so powerful to you? A very beautiful comment that the supervisor who uh, 
preceded the ceremony of oath uh, said, he said, um, this country is forged and it's made by immigrants. He said, uh, we are welcoming you into our family because if we look far enough in every single one of us, we are going to find that we're all immigrants at some point. If we look way, way, way back, we said there are very few uh, citizens these days that are full-blown Native Americans. So in some way to another, everyone is um, an immigrant, and that's how this country was formed. We, uh, he, he said also something really, really powerful and beautiful. He said, we're not asking you to give up your nationality, I mean, your um, country of origin. We're not asking you to give up your religion. We're not asking you to give up your customs. We're just asking you for allegiance to the United States and bringing those experiences, bringing those customs. What it does is it enriches the country as a whole. Hmm. It, it, it brings out a sense of more culture and, and better understanding of the world as a whole, more so than just the little place where we all live. And, and, and the things that we see on a daily basis. It was, yeah. it was really beautiful, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, there's this uh, strong sense, not just of welcoming in uh, what that official said to you, but 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 also of optimism uh, about what, what lies ahead for you and the other people who were, were naturalized that day. Uh, Jacqueline, I wonder if, if you had similar kinds of feelings or experience uh, when you were there uh, swearing allegiance to uh, to the United States and taking the oath? I think I did. Um, I, I, U.S. and Canada are often portrayed as so similar, though there are, you know, many subtle differences. Um, but on that day, you know, in a room of, there was 40 of us and you know, we were from scattered, you know, nations all over the world to be in, you know, the same place for the same purpose, um, you know, all showing our patriotism and our desire to be here and support what the U.S. stands for and to support the Constitution and kind of be like it was like a community of people that all were together. It was it was and it was really interesting and emotional day. Um, you know, people we were all grinning from ear to ear. Um and I was lucky enough. I did mine just before the Fourth of July, so you know, I celebrated the Fourth of July. I got gangbusters. Friends brought all kinds of flags and decorations, and I got you know outfits and earrings and hats, and you know, just it was such a special day. Um, it was. It really meant. I think it means you know a lot to people that are choosing the path. Um, you know, of course, you know, people are born into it and that's, you know, they tend, I think, maybe take it for granted. And I think the, the immigration path and us sharing our story just, you know, hopefully will remind and awaken all those that got it, you know, organically by their parents and, you know, make them realize how lucky they are to have been, you know, born into this place, this land of opportunity, this, you know, patriotic land of the free, home of the brave, and all those corny things that you that really mean a lot more once you've you know gone through this process. You're like, yeah. yep, yep, I'm part of this team. I'm I'm one of them now. And and Jacqueline, does that make you optimistic about this country and its future, even given all of the challenges that uh, that we have and struggle with? 
It does. I, you know, in the world we live in with as busy as everyone is, with as many distractions, you know, be it TV and sports and children and schooling and jobs, etc. I think, you know, the core, when you get down to it, everyone wants to be happy with where they live. They want to be able to support, you know, the direction they're country is going. And I think when it comes down to it, um, I think the majority of Americans more so than, well, at least I can only compare it to Canada are so much more patriotic and engaged in their process. Um, I used to, when I was a kid and we'd come over here shopping, you know, for the day, I would see flag after flag after flag on people's porches and on their lawns and flagpoles at businesses. And it just always amazed me as a memory, you know, just going back 30 years I would see, you know, one or two Canadian flags for on a business, maybe one on a house. Um, but over here, it was, you know, tons. You know, every third house had something that they were displaying their pride. So um, it's, I think that d- deep down, um, Americans all possess that. And if it needs to be, you know, woken up a little bit so that everyone, you know, reengages and, you know, participates more in their community and, and in their um in their, uh, you know, processes and their elections and, and um, volunteering and all those things that make a community strong and, and uh, prosperous. I think, you know, there's hope on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, Carlos, we've only got about a minute left, but uh, I want to get your sense of whether you're optimistic about this country and its future as you become an American. Absolutely. I think uh, that sense that uh, Jacqueline had and experienced, I think there, there's a great love for this country of many, many people. I've met countless people born here in the United States, and it's just been beautiful, beautiful souls. And I think we just need to spread that that love for it more. Just have a little bit of courtesy and a little bit of respect to one another. And just that is going to be the foundation, the core foundation that's going to make everything else on top of it just better because of it just be kind to each other and then that it, yes this is there is a very better future for all of us here absolutely okay Jacqueline Arnold and Carlos Herrera again congratulations on becoming Americans and thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit today to tell your citizenship story thank you Stephen Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib joins the program. We're going to talk about uh, all the things that are going on in Washington with her. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.